0: Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. On this call to Earth Day, many of us want to know what we can do to address climate change. This podcast discusses a little understood strategy that is close to home, no further than a trip to your local town or city hall. Today, we will be interviewing Professor John R. Nolan about lessons he learned in preparing a book for ELI on the influential role of local governments in reducing the emissions of greenhouse gases, the principal cause of climate change. He completed a nationwide study on the economic and environmental impacts of climate change and what local governments, including our own, can do to mitigate them. But first, here are some facts about why this topic is important. Climate change is becoming an increasingly local issue and a costly one at that. Because of where and how we have developed our communities, flooding, wildfire, and other impacts from climate change have put many people in harm's way and have led to increased property damage and costs. According to a recent study by the Union of Concerned Scientists, as many as 311,000 US coastal homes with a collective market value of about $117.5 billion will be at risk of chronic flooding over the next 30 years. That number jumps to 2.4 million homes and $912 billion by the end of the century. Meanwhile, increased development in the urban wildland interface has left many neighborhoods vulnerable to wildfires. And water scarcity due to intensified droughts is expected to negatively affect agricultural production and drinking water availability. As a result of these climate impacts, land and property values are declining leading to quote, unquote, land use climate bubbles. Sadly, these land use climate bubbles are popping up all over the nation at an alarming rate, and they could very well lead to an economic crisis that will be more damaging than the housing bubble of 2008. Fortunately, John Nolan has been thinking about the issue for some time now. John is a distinguished professor of law emeritus at the Elizabeth Haub School of Law at Pace University, where he focuses on land use, sustainable development, climate change, housing insecurity, and racial inequity. John is also counsel to Pace Law School's Land Use Law Center, which he founded in 1993. John recently published a book with ELI Press called Choosing to Succeed, Land Use Law and Climate Control, which describes how the local land use legal system can leverage state and federal assistance to reduce carbon emissions. We chose to feature John and his book in tandem with CNN's Call to Earth Day, which takes place today, November 10th, as an initiative to share the stories of those dedicated to conservation, environmentalism, and sustainability. John, thanks so much for being here today. We're delighted to have you.
1: Well, thank you, Heather. And first, my thanks to the Environmental Law Institute for arranging this podcast, and particularly in our side conversations for labeling what we're talking about, bubble trouble. That's a great metaphor for one of our nation's most serious crises and for a mostly overlooked source of effective solutions, which is, as you just mentioned, local governments. We will be talking today about these climate change bubbles forming in every region of the country, affecting most communities, and the interesting fact that local governments have the legal authority to touch and control approximately 75 percent of the carbon emissions that cause climate change.
0: Yeah, so let's jump right in. How did you first come across the land use climate bubble issue?
1: To answer your question, I first thought of the climate change bubble metaphor in 2014 when we were conducting a workshop for Long Island coastal community leaders on sea level rise and its effect on the residential and downtown neighborhoods, particularly the economic effect, which was gonna be striking. Involved were mayors and land use board members, environmentalists and developers, neighborhood representatives and business owners. We showed them sea level rise projection maps that had just been issued and they were shocked by even the most conservative estimates of the problem. But interestingly, they were fully engaged in working on potential solutions. Now there were Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals among them, even so. The debate was not about whether climate change was happening or its causes, but how to solve the problem on the ground. Meanwhile, as we all know, the representatives in Congress were involved in fierce ideological debates stalemated by their political frenzy, disagreeing primarily about the role of government in addressing the problem, which some denied was even happening. But here on the Long Island shoreline, Local local leaders were engaged in problem-solving, an American ideal shared by them all, and a deeper value than their ideological beliefs. They saw the immediate threat to the local economy and environment and were dedicated to addressing it. I realized some point during this discussion that they were facing a land-use climate change bubble one that along with several similar bubbles in other communities throughout the country could burst and in the aggregate cause greater damage than the housing bubble of 2008. I made that point in a blog in 2014 and three months later, Henry Paulson, the former secretary of treasury, who was secretary during the housing bubble, made the same point in an op-ed piece in the New York Times. He wrote, This is a quote. Um, We're making the same mistake today with climate change. We're staring down a climate bubble, he actually used the term climate bubble, that poses enormous risks to both our environment and the economy. After I read that piece, I contacted ELI and suggested we do a nationwide research project on bubbles in every region of the country and publish a book on climate change bubbles and the effective strategies for addressing it locally in addition to in the state houses or the nation's capital.
0: You've been working on this for a long time, so thanks for that background. So how does a typical climate bubble play out?
1: Well, it kind of works in phases. The First ones are not too visible and the later stages are impossible to ignore. A drought happens, for example, or flooding occurs. It becomes hard to sell properties for a profit, sometimes hard to sell them at all. Climate change damage makes leaders reluctant to finance property sales or new development. They certainly will not do it without insurance and insurance companies are reluctant to insure such casualties after multiple occurrences. So that after the second or third flood or hurricane, they step back, property values plummet and sales slow to a crawl. Without insurance, you cannot get a mortgage. And for most of the market, without a mortgage, you cannot buy a home. An example that we found in our research occurred in Spicewood Beach, Texas. So we talked to brokers down there. Just imagine that you're a real estate broker showing a house, one listed for, let's just say, $225,000. When you arrive at the house with your prospective buyer, there's a water trunk at the curb filling a cistern. The client asks, what's happening? Turns out the houses in the neighborhood near Lake Traverse in one of the state's largest lake-based real estate markets. Investor interest in local real estate tends to rise and fall with the lake's water level. Frequent droughts take a toll on the community's ability to meet residential needs for potable water. For over a year, water was brought by trucks to Spicewood Beach to satisfy the community's water needs, And this house was receiving its weekly delivery. So as a broker, you picked a bad time to show this house. This effect was present in all the community's neighborhood. And you could tell that a climate change bubble was about to pop. Not completely realized by the people, but evident to the broker for sure. And the price of a house with a water truck in front might be about to tank along with the community's economy. So the next phase we encountered in the village of Sydney in the New york Catskill Mountain region. There things were even worse. In 2006, Sydney was hit by a record-breaking storm that dropped 14 inches of rain over the upper Susquehanna Basin. The village suffered major damage to multiple structures in its floodplain areas, including the Main Street Business District and adjacent residential neighborhoods. The community, of course, focused on rebuilding because the flood was supposed to be a 100-year event. and would not likely happen again. Just five years later, however, Tropical Storm Lee hit the village, causing widespread structural damage in the floodplain again. Things in the community then changed. Sydney's mayor told us directly that following the 2006 flood, real estate prices did not decline and casualty insurance coverage and mortgages remained available. This changed, he said, after Lee and the devastation of the village in 2011. According to local brokers, home prices fell drastically and many buildings became impossible to sell. Casualty insurance became unavailable. The demand for real estate in the flood-prone areas completely disappeared. These private market realities, indicators that a land use climate change bubble had popped signal Sydney that retreat was the most viable action rather than rebuilding. Its land use planning then refocused on moving the downtown buildings and some residences out of the lower lying floodplain to adjacent higher land and turning the floodplain into a park. It was doing the previously unthinkable retreating because of climate-induced changes in the market and the considerable public and private costs involved.
0: Thanks for that. So in your book, you note that local leaders are at the center of the land use climate crisis. Can you explain how local action can help solve such a global problem?
1: Yes, I can. I think this is a a, a critical point and I'm delighted that you you brought it up. The, The consequences of climate change are obviously intrinsically local. They happen on the ground in communities where damage and death occur. Local governments are the first responders. They're responsible for rescue and recovery. Of course, with essentially state and federal assistance, but they are responsible for rescue and recovery in the first instance. Importantly, they're also that level of government that has been delegated the primary responsibility for land use planning and approving development projects. That is, for deciding. What goes where on the, on the landscape? It's been this way in all of our states since the 1920s. Local governments adopt zoning that controls land use and building shapes and sizes. They enforce the standard energy code. They create development patterns that determine how much we drive from point to point, And they have the authority to preserve and enhance the vegetated environment. So we all know that climate change is caused by greenhouse gases, about 85 percent of which is carbon dioxide. What most people don't know is that about 40 percent of national CO2 emissions are attributable to to heating and cooling buildings, 20 percent to the movement of personal vehicles through the built environment, and around 18 percent of carbon in the atmosphere is sequestered by the vegetated environment. So how land use planning designs our human settlements is directly related to the emissions that cause climate change. South of our law school in White Plains, New York, for example, looking at New York City, we know that individual residents are responsible for just over six metric tons of CO2 emissions annually. Equidistant to the north, the climate action plan of a suburban community estimates that local residents are responsible for over 30 metric tons per year. In that town, many residents live in large energy inefficient houses. They drive everywhere for whatever they need. We know that mixed use walkable neighborhoods and thermally efficient buildings are responsible for much less fossil fuel use and constitute what we call low carbon land use. So local leaders are obviously key. They draw the development map and they pass laws that implement that map. They need help, technical assistance and money, as well as guidance from higher levels of government. For sure, there is a critical role for the federal government and the state government to play at the global and national and state levels to address climate change effectively. But there is an overlooked and critically important role for the federal and state governments to play and helping our nation's 40,000 local governments who can influence about 75% of CO2 emissions.
0: Every town is different. Um, so what can local communities and governments do to avoid or mitigate land use climate bubbles?
1: We did an earlier book for, for you uh, back in 2003 for the Environmental Law Institute. The book was called The Advent of Local Environmental Law. We did that after our students found, to everyone's surprise, that local governments throughout the country were adopting local land use laws to protect the environment, that is habitats, lakes, rivers, streams, groundwater viewsheds, and air quality, to mention a few. Law professors and environmentalists at the time thought, like climate change law today, that environmental law was a federal thing, maybe a state thing. But certainly not a local thing. My students then, of course, curious as they always are, wanted to know why local governments were adopting these local natural resource protection laws. So they called local leaders in many of the sample communities that they had found. And they reported back to me, and professor, they, they said, we found that it's due to the perturbation effect. I yes, asked what that meant. They said, well, we found that local leaders were, in most cases, perturbed by some damage or degradation in their environment. For some, it was groundwater pollution. For others, loss of small wetlands. For others, the habitat of a particularly valued species. When asked how they decided what to do, most local leaders said they found examples of local environmental law through various information sources and adapted them to their communities. The ELI book was our effort to help. It contained dozens of sample environmental laws that local governments could consider. We built a database called Gaining Ground and put that on our website. In our training, we brought in local leaders who would champion one or more environmental laws in their communities to explain what they did and how they succeeded. We knew from our studies of what is known as diffusion theory that this is the way change happens. Leaders adapt practices adopted by their peers in similar communities. So to your point about every community being different, each may be perturbed by a unique problem and focus on it and a successful, successful effort elsewhere. We found one community in Dutchess County, New York, that wanted to protect a watershed with two small lakes. They told us that they had adapted a novel conservation residential district, zoning district, from a neighboring municipality. They simply changed the zoning district and the watershed from geometrical shapes, which most zoning districts take on, to one defined by the borders of the lake's watershed. To look at it from a 10,000-foot view, it looked kind of like an amoeba on the map. This was innovative enough to come to their attention and trustworthy because it was adopted by a peer community with similar problems. So we tried to speed up this adaptation process, the diffusion of innovation through research books, database, da- databases, and lots of training using peer leaders as examples.
0: What about the private market? What can it do to help reform land use policy in light of our changing climate
1: Interestingly, Heather, that you asked that because there's a lot of noise and good noise nationally about corporate leaders adopting a new approach to business planning. It's called ESG, Environment, Social, and Governance. It calls on them to embody environmental, social, and equitable governance objectives along with profits in their decision-making. Sustainable New Jersey is a model program for encouraging municipalities to adopt sustainability measures including many of the land use reforms that aim to prevent climate change bubbles. Sustainable New Jersey is itself sustained financially by a variety of private sector communities, including large retailers, health insurance companies, and energy enterprises, all of which have a critical stake in promoting sustainability and preventing climate change bubbles. In reforming, land use practices. Local governments are often interested in collaborating with the private sector and have learned that business leaders can often lead land use change. About 15 years ago, commercial real estate brokers explained to us that we didn't have to regulate everything, that some building owners were greening their buildings because potential tenants would not rent buildings that were not sustainable. This was driven by the fact that their employees insisted on sustainability in the workplace. Of course, this was an exception at that early time, but by greening their buildings, they were showing local planners, local regulators, and other building owners that it was possible and paved the way for responsible regulation where voluntary buy-in wasn't sufficient. Another example that just came up in our research last week involves the COVID-19 pandemic. Property owners, landlords, office building owners are telling us now that certain of their tenants are insisting on them making building improvements immediately that reduce health risks during the pandemic, better ventilation systems, reconfigured office space, spatial distancing on the floor and the halls, on the grounds, non-touch elevators and doors and the like. The tenants cannot afford work stoppages, and sick, absent employees. These property owners are responding and again showing others and the regulatory community what is feasible.
0: Got it. So, now kind of shifting to individuals, what should the average citizen do if they do not want to find themselves in one of these climate bubbles?
1: Look around. Figure out what you're perturbed by. Walk down the city or town hall and speak to a workshop meeting of the local legislature the city council or the town board join the local planning board or help the local environmental advisory board inventory perturbations citywide you know school children teachers and parents are particularly persuasive speaking in public on these matters also for professionals in 2019 the american bar association Faster a resolution urging lawyers to advise their clients about climate risks and to take action regarding them. So suggesting more secure insurance and underwriting standards and mortgage underwriting standards helps. Each family and every business has a role in this local conversation.
0: So with all of this in mind, what are your top three land use solutions for the climate
1: challenge? Well, referring back to the low-carbon land use figures, we need to emphasize three objectives, using less energy to heat and cool buildings, redesigning communities to get folks out of their cars, and doing all we can to preserve the natural landscape. So on the first of these, it's interesting that President Trump quipped that he was elected to represent the citizens of Pittsburgh, not Paris, as he withdrew from the Paris Global Climate Accord He might not have known that Pittsburgh is a model smart city, using its land use authority to incentivize green buildings and reduce energy use. Shockingly, we've learned from our energy center that two-thirds of the heat used to generate electricity in remote plants is lost as escaped heat, and even more is lost in transmission to places like downtown Pittsburgh. The city adopted a land-use permitting system that rewarded developers who helped create microgrid networks that generated electricity on-site, greatly reducing the energy lost in remote generation and transmission. To the second point, getting people out of their cars and reducing tailpipe emissions requires transit-oriented development and the redesign of streets and infrastructure to encourage walking and biking. Both Raleigh and Chicago are currently adopting equitable transit-oriented development overlay zones near transit stations to encourage mixed building uses and affordable housing so residents can live without cars and so lower-income residents and workers can reduce what in many communities are astronomical housing and transportation costs. Then to the third point, to increasing the sequestering environment. Communities are reorienting their open space preservation plans and land use regulations to focus on carbon sequestration as their key objective. They are using open space set-asides, conservation easements, enhanced tree canopy objectives, tree and forest preservation laws, and clustering development with an eye on how many tons of CO2 can be absorbed and stored.
0: Thanks for those insights. So, before we sign off, any final recommendations for our listeners?
1: I hope that listeners hear, in this bubble trouble message, an opportunity to get involved on this special Call to Earth Day sponsored by CNN and Rolex. The call to state capitals and to the Congress should be, help us problem-solve, not just do something about our warming climate. Elected leaders, and state houses and in Congress are inclined to listen to involve local constituents and help them solve locally serious problems. And on this day, November 10th, the call to local leaders, stakeholders, and educators is to get involved in local climate change mitigation, problem solving, and creating resilient communities. You can influence factors that produce 75% of CO2, which is 85% of greenhouse gases which is a cause of climate change. If you are perturbed by a rising climate change land use bubble, do some research on strategies, find out what neighboring communities are doing, and then walk down to Village or City Hall and get involved in problem solving. Become a champion in the local fight to prevent the cost of bubble trouble.
0: Thanks so much, John, for joining us today. For more on his book, Choosing to Succeed, Land Use Law and Climate Control, visit www.eli.org Thank you for tuning in to People Places Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast podcast@eli.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.